News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Later on today, we will be getting a COVID briefing and update from Dr. Bonnie Henry, Health Minister Adrian Dix. You'll hear that on the Jill Bennett Show, of course. But really, the hot topic of conversation has to do with what is BC going to do? We've got two of the largest provinces in Canada already implementing stricter measures. Ontario announced theirs yesterday. The question is, could BC soon be getting even tighter restrictions? We're already behind when it comes to testing and booster doses. We're trying to ramp that up. So how do we do that? Well, let's talk about how Omicron is impacting the different provinces. Joining us is Dr. Isaac Bagosh, infectious disease clinician and scientist at the University of Toronto. Thank you for joining us this morning. My pleasure. Happy to chat. What is the situation like in Ontario and Quebec right now? Yeah, so certainly, I mean, I'm firmly planted in Toronto. And, you know, in Ontario, we have uh, pretty spectacular case numbers. Like, this has dwarfed any other wave we've seen in terms of the actual case numbers. Of course, we know that this variant, Omicron, doesn't cause as a significant illness compared to the Delta variant. But that doesn't mean it's a walk in the park. And when you have a massive number of people infected over a short period of time, even a small percentage of them will require health care and hospital care. And, of course, that small percentage of a very large number of people is going to end up still being a lot of people that need health care. So we are starting to see a rise in hospitalizations and, and health care utilization. And then you compound that with there's just not enough people working in health care now. We've seen a lot of people leave over the last couple of years because it's absolutely stunk working in health care. And on top of that, you now have additional pressures because people might have COVID or have been an exposure to a, a patient with COVID or someone with COVID. So there's just that compounds all the personnel issues. So you've got a growing number of cases, not enough people working in healthcare. And, uh, you know, it's, it's obviously putting a, a significant pinch on the healthcare system. Now. Right. And what about the school situation? Because I understand in Ontario, they're going to remote learning for everybody. Yeah, you might actually hear it uh, on this interview. I'm teaching grade five about 10 feet away from where we're living, where we're chatting <laughs> right now. And I've got a Reality, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And then I'm going to go in and uh, do a clinic later on in the afternoon. Like, this is this is it. We all roll up our sleeves and do it. I'm really not a fan of school closures. I think, uh, obviously, school is is extremely important, obviously, for ed- not just education, but for psychosocial well-being. And, and, you know, when you think about the inequities of this pandemic, school closures is probably one of the biggest inequities, right? It impacts every single parent with a disproportionate impact on mothers. It is extremely challenging. Having said that, you know, in the same breath, we can't ignore that there is the potential for amplification of this virus in school settings. You have to create a safe school environment. So if you're going to take that step to close the schools, obviously you should really do that last and open them first and use that time to ensure that you can put all the potential safety measures in place so that when students do go back, they go back to an area where there's going to be less transmission. I think it's foolish to think that there's going to be no transmission to the schools, even if you, you know, have N95 masks on everybody's faces and everyone's vaccinated. Like, you're still going to see outbreaks. You're still going to see transmission. But, you know, hopefully we can mitigate that with uh, by creating safer schools. Right. Every It seems like every province has dealt with this slightly differently. Did we need, do you think, across Canada, a more uniform way of dealing with that situation? 
Yeah, I mean, certainly some st- better standardization would have been helpful on some regards. But in all fairness, I mean, the problem is this is a massive country, and there are going to be regional differences in 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 the pandemic. And you know, obviously, there can be uh, you know some differences in in policies to reflect the different demographics and, and different challenges that each each province has. And even at a regional level within the province, you might see differences. But it, obviously, I think we should have been in lockstep for other parts of the pandemic. For example, I think it would have been helpful for like vaccine rollout. If we were in lockstep with vaccine rollout, that would have been a lot easier. You have, you know, some people scratching their head in province A saying, well, why the hell aren't we getting vaccinated? They're getting vaccinated in province B, you know, so... I think maybe that would have been a little bit better, but right. uh, but th- I, I do appreciate there are some differences between the provinces. As well. well, and there's also different levels of government transparency, aren't there, depending on which province that you live in? Not only that, but different levels in transparency for different issues at different times. I mean, if we really want to get into it, it's true. It, it absolutely is true. I, and, you know, I think if you talk to most people, Many people are fans of transparency, and 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 rightfully so. Like it builds trust, uh, and and you know it's okay to say things aren't going well if things aren't going well. But let's not sweep it under the rug. Let's just have open, honest conversations about what's going well, what's not going well, and then again, what's realistic. What what can we actually do to uh, to to solve the issues that aren't going well? Right. So, how would you rate the BC government in terms of the way they've been dealing with some of these issues? Well, you're going to hear me try and expertly dodge this question by saying <laughs> I don't know enough about BC. But in all fairness, like I'm trying not to be that Toronto-centric, Ontario-centric person, but I, I kind of am because that's where I live. I do, folk. I try read up on the rest of the country. I just am not as familiar with the nuances and details of, of a lot of the other provinces. I, I, I'm not. It's not like I'm not paying attention, but I don't think I'm at a level where I could criticize that in a fair manner. I guess I'm curious as to when it comes to like a public health issue, why governments have all dealt with this so differently. Like, you know, we tend to think, okay, if it's science, then there's science and it should be all open and, and uniform in how we're dealing with the situation. But that hasn't been the case because politics comes into it, right? Right. I, I agree with that a hundred percent. And you know, like, even then, right, you can have the same data and have lots of people look at the same data and come to different conclusions. That's not unique to COVID. This has been happening in science for you know, since the beginning of science, right? <laughs> we've, we've done this forever. Uh, and, and politics is no different. You can also have, a, you know, politicians can have the exact same briefing on the science and say, okay, we're going to take path A. And other people are going to say, okay, we're going to take path B. It really is. It's, it's not surprising. But, you know, at the end of the day, the rules of biology are, are equally applied to every place in the world. And, you know, the virus is going to do what the virus is going to do. We know that this loves to uh, transmit and amplify, especially in indoor settings. We know how to create safer indoor settings. Um, you know, policy, there's more, there should be more similarities than differences, but I appreciate there can be differences as well, based on demographics, geography, right. you know, also, the will of the people, right? Like we're very quick to trash uh, other places. Like, 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 let's look at Florida, for example. Everyone loves to look at Florida, and either praise them or trash them. But like at the end of the day, listen, that would not be my approach. Uh, having said that, if that's what people want, who are we to say, sorry, you can't do that? Like, you know, there's a balance. Yeah, there's a balance. Like, listen, they've, they've chosen a path with way more infections. 
uh, per capita, way more deaths per capita. Their healthcare system can withstand that way better than our healthcare system. We just don't have the wiggle room in our healthcare capacity. If truly, truly people are choosing that path forward, who am I to say no? Again, I would have taken a different path, but, but again, like you'll see people vote with their feet. Do you think the restrictions work like what Ontario is doing, what Quebec is doing? Is this something that you think other provinces, perhaps BC should be doing? You know, in all fairness, I don't know. I truly don't know with Omicron. I mean, obviously in, in prior waves, like, let's think of, we had a really nasty wave three. Like, it was it was very, very challenging in Ontario. And, you know, I hate lockdowns. I think lockdowns stink. Obviously, there's economic ramifications, but there's also mental health, psychosocial ramifications. Like, it, it, there's, it, lockdowns are just the worst for so many different reasons. But, like, when your healthcare system is truly stretched beyond capacity and you're canceling surgeries, like, what other options do you have? Like, and again, they, they obviously they should be avoided at all costs. But at some point when, you know, you're really I'm not trying to be dramatic, but you're faced with like a, an, a, an event where people are going to be well, not people. People are dying and you are, you know, at the brink of choosing who gets life saving treatment and who doesn't because your ICUs are just completely flooded. I mean, like, you, you don't really have an, a number of tools yeah. at your disposal to fix that quickly. Yeah, you do what and, you like, can. There really aren't. Yeah. yeah, so do I like lockdowns? No, I don't. But is there a time and place for them? Sadly, there is. But it shouldn't be our, fir- it shouldn't be our first, you know, oh, COVID numbers are going high. Go to, yeah. Down. Like, no, obviously, we, there's about 8 trillion steps you could take before that. All right, that's a good way to put it. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Have a great day. Dr. Isaac Bagosh is an infectious disease clinician and scientist at the University of Toronto talking about the restrictions and particularly in Ontario and in Quebec and whether or not BC should or would could see something like that. We are going to get a press conference today from Dr. Bonnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix. Lots of questions about testing. We've reached our max capacity when it comes to testing lineups at testing centres. But given what we have heard... Do you think we're going to get more restrictions here in BC? Do you think we need more restrictions in BC? I mean, you're out there. You see what's going on. Do you think people are listening? This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about what's going on on our local mountains. We've probably heard the story about the person who had a broken leg after an avalanche on Hollyburn Mountain. This was near West Vancouver. That comes to us from North Shore Rescue. This person was rescued on, well, yesterday afternoon, and it was a bit tricky. Showed more than a dozen rescuers using snowshoes, cross-country skis to get to this person through near whiteout conditions on the mountain. And there are concerns about avalanches. And so, you know what, why not? Try to start out the new year by getting that message across to people. So joining us now is Mike Danks, our North Shore Rescue Team leader. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, thanks for being here. First off, just to recap, though, 2021, how busy of a year was that for you? 2021 was our busiest year to date with 225 calls, which was 74 calls above our previous record. That's crazy. Do you think, do you attribute that to more people just getting out during the pandemic? For sure. I think that's that's a, a piece of it. And then our, our night vision program actually saw us um, assisting other teams as well. That bumped up our call volume a little bit as well. Okay, so here we are, January the 4th. And Mike, what's been going on on the local mountains already? 
Yeah, I mean, so we had, you know, the avalanche that you talked about yesterday, which actually took 22 of our members uh, to evacuate that person overland. Um, because of the conditions, we were not able to fly. And I think that really highlights, you know, the challenge that it is to bring someone out overland in mountainous terrain in those conditions. So it's it's very manpower um, exhaustive for sure. And so what were the, what was the situation there? Like what caused that avalanche? Do we know what was going on? Well, you know what, it's likely a human triggered avalanche. Um, But again, I think people really need to be aware if we're having this much snow falling, people, you know, even with small amounts of snow, people need to check the avalanche forecast and they need to be very aware of the situation that they're in. So those those conditions can change throughout the day um, and they change depending on the aspect and the temperature and the solar influence on the snowpack. So having some understanding about avalanche conditions is really key if you're going to be traveling in the uncontrolled areas. Yeah, can you give us, yeah, give us an idea about that, Mike, that when you talk about avalanche conditions, what should we be aware of? What should we look for? Yeah, so I think if you're going to be outside of the controlled areas of the ski resorts, then you need to have avalanche safety equipment with you. That's a transceiver, a probe, and a shovel at the very minimum. And you need to have an understanding of how to use that equipment and also how to navigate through avalanche terrain safely. And traveling with uh, with someone else is absolutely key. If if someone does get caught in an avalanche, you need to be able to to rescue your party as well because it's going to take a significant amount of time for rescue resources to get into the field and another big consideration is if it's not safe for you to be in the field it's not going to be safe for rescuers so people need to keep in mind that we may not be able to respond to the area that you're in until those conditions improve. Now, Mike, we take the mountains and everything there for granted at the best of times under the best of conditions and still get into trouble. Are you concerned about the weather now and people just not taking it seriously enough? For sure. I think we just, we have so many people that are getting out into the mountains now. It's become very trendy to, um, to get out into the backcountry and, you know, we, we don't blame anybody. It's so beautiful. We encourage people to get out there and to do it safely but it just takes doing some of that research to understand the terrain you're getting into. And there's lots of different areas on the North Shore that you can go that are very safe um, from avalanche conditions. So we recommend joining a hiking club, uh, a ski club, a snowshoe club, anything like that where you can gain some experience from people um, that have been out into the terrain and understand the terrain and, and can showcase how to use that equipment. Mike, what area would you like people to just stay away from? Like from your experience, from what you're seeing out there, what are the hotspots right now? You know, I think the the really challenging terrain for us is when people go, when they duck the ropes on our local mountains here and they get into um, serious avalanche terrain very quickly. Um, the best spots to ski are typically avalanche terrain. So we really want to just encourage everyone, if you're up on the local mountains, get up there early, enjoy the terrain inbounds, don't duck the ropes, because anytime you're ducking the ropes, you're going to be getting into avalanche terrain, and we've seen um, a number of fatalities over the years of people that have been caught by avalanches, and, you know, it's it puts our members at risk, and it also... When other people see tracks going into those areas, they probably think, oh, that's a great spot to go. You know, they obviously made it out, but that's not the case. Ah, do you think that's going on out there where people see other people doing it and they go, I want to go there. That looks like fun. 
for, for sure. I mean, just look at our social media. It's, it's crazy. So it's a tough how, one. How do you do that, Mike? I mean, you, you must see people doing things on social media and you think, what are they doing? This is just going to mean more calls for us. Yeah, I know it really is. And, and we're just doing our best as a team to, to educate the public. And thankfully, we have groups like Adventure Smart that are getting the message out. They're at the trailheads. They're trying to educate people that are going out there. And, and your efforts through the media. I mean, all of those collective efforts hopefully are going to have some influence. Okay, so then just to recap for people out there, Mike, what do you want people, if they're going to go outside and they want to enjoy the snow in the mountains, what do you want them to remember? Yeah, if you're going into uncontrolled terrain, please take an avalanche safety course. Check the avalanche forecast at avalanche.ca. Have the appropriate equipment with you. That's your avalanche safety equipment at a bare minimum. So that's a transceiver probe and a shovel. And then you need to take into consideration um, a way to call for help, extra layers um, to for the conditions. You need to have adequate footwear and you know at this type of year we're talking about crampons and an ice axe so there's a lot that you can learn um, from our website and also there's a lot you can learn on avalanche conditions at avalanche.ca as well okay so you just said the basic equipment people should have are like crampons and an ice axe but how many people do you think heading out actually have that not very many and, and again, I think it's really important to say that there's a ton of people that are getting out into the local mountains and they're doing it safely and they're doing it every day. Um, it's just the people um, that are new to, to accessing the backcountry that really need the education. There's always going to be mishaps that happen, like what happened yesterday. People are going to get caught in avalanches. That will happen, and we understand that but we really want to try to prevent that from happening as much as possible through All right. education. Yeah, through education. Mike, thanks so much for your time. All right, you take care. And Mike Danks is the North Shore Rescue Team leader with some advice to people who think they might want to be heading out into the backcountry to do some skiing or snowshoeing or whatever the case may be. Please be careful. Stay to the recognized areas. Uh, that that situation they had yesterday was scary, not just for the person who had the broken leg, but for the more than 20 search and rescue people who had to get involved to bring that person out. They couldn't use a helicopter. So an awful lot of search and rescue people were involved in that. They just they want to try to avoid those situations as much as possible. This is Mornings with Simi. Take a look at those prices at the pump in the last couple of days and you think, what the heck is going on out there? I mean, what I've seen is about $1.65 or so a litre. Are prices going to be going down or are they going up? Well, joining us now is Dan McTagg, who's president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Good morning, Dan. Uh, good morning, Simi. Dan, what's happening? Well, <laughs> it looks like we have two refineries uh, that uh, were knocked out or at least uh, had to cut back uh, production of uh, uh, their refinery runs. Uh, the Holly Frontier Refinery in Anacortes, used to be known as the Shell Refinery, it shut down, literally, uh, because they couldn't bring in barges of oil to, uh, to process. And so the cold temperatures affected that. And last week, unbeknownst to most, right here in our own backyard, the Parkland Refinery uh, did what's called flaring. Uh, it turns out it was just a little too cold for that refinery. They're not used to this kind of weather. And as a result, uh, they were down for about five, six days. So that's created a bit of a crimp in supply. 
but that, of course, is the small uh, element here. We're going to, by the way, uh, Simi, we're going to see a two cent increase at the pumps tomorrow. So that one sixty five nine is going to one sixty seven nine, and if uh, I'm reading the tea leaves correctly on oil today and yesterday, we could be looking at. Uh, perhaps as much as a buck 70 by the weekend. So back to the good old days of high uh, yeah. unusual prices, but uh, let's get used to it. Well, I filled up at a dollar 68 last weekend, so I can feel that pain. I did feel that pain. But here's the thing, Dan, like prices are really quick to go up when there is a, you know, refinery problem or something like that, but, but they sure do take an awful long time for them to come back down. Uh, you know, Simi, for the past dozen years, I've been working with uh, your colleagues here, uh, including uh, Janet Brown, who I spoke to last evening. And, uh, you know, you can actually say that works in many jurisdictions, but it doesn't for Vancouver. Here's why. Whatever the wholesale price is for gasoline on the Pacific Northwest market, and that is a true market. It's actually based out of Portland, uh, Oregon. Once that number is set, you can pretty much, like clockwork, determine what the wholesale price is going to be, taxes, etc., so the price and fluctuation is going up and down. Yes, I wear the hat as president Canadians for affordable energy, but I also run a little site called gaswizard.ca. And it's very similar to what I've done in the past in terms of predictions. And I can tell you almost two days ahead what the price is going to be. So there really isn't any holdback, certainly in the lower mainland Vancouver market. There might be in other jurisdictions across the province. I'm thinking here, Kelowna and uh, Kamloops, where sometimes they never move uh, for periods of time. But uh, be assured that whatever the market is, one way or another, going up or down, it's pretty much reflected at the pumps, at least on the wholesale side. Right. Taking a look at your website right now, it shows, though, that right across the country, it looks like prices are going up. Uh, yeah, they are. And this is really a reflection of the fact that despite Omicron uh, creating, what, the fourth wave, uh, the idea that this would create demand destruction just hasn't happened. And although airlines and others have had to scale back some of their uh, fuel use uh, as a result of cancellations and weather, et cetera. Markets are saying uh, 2022 is going to be extraordinarily expensive. And that's why, I mean, the, the headline, of course, for me is having done this for 30 years, my, my bigger concern is that we're going to be looking at a scenario developing this year where we're going to hit all-time prices. I wouldn't be surprised to see gas prices at some points between now and July 1st hitting $1.85. That's 1.85 cents a litre for regular gasoline. And that's simply because uh, world production of oil is down and demand is surging. Uh, And of course, there's other factors as well. Uh, A lot of oil companies are not producing as much oil as they did before. Regulations are uh, hampering some of that. And of course, there is a move by by Bay Street, Wall Street, call it what you want, um, to uh, disinvest in fossil fuels, which is great. If that's what you want, the problem, however, is that we're winding up short, and that's creating a, a pretty big problem for not just for oil and gasoline, but uh, the price of just about everything, including food. Okay, so you're saying don't like get used to this, essentially. Yeah, get used to it. Uh, in fact, Simi, this morning I'm looking oils up uh, a buck and a half a barrel. Uh, just and we're in the early part of January. Normally, you see things taper off. We have a crunch, and um, put it well, put it in perspective. The world is about uh, is short about 2.3 million barrels of production a day. Demand is exceeding supply, and it doesn't really matter what OPEC does. Part of the problem is the United States. Um, you know, just prior to the pandemic, so back uh, go back to February uh, 2020, oil, the United States was producing 13.1 million barrels a day. Today, it's about 11.7, 11.8 million barrels. So they're short. 
And there's no Mexico. There's no Venezuela. In fact, with pipeline blockages, there's no Canada to help the U.S. So they have to import more and more of their oil from, you got it, Russia. Right. Oh, interesting times. Then, Dan, thanks so much for that. Great to be here this morning. See you soon, Simi. That's Dan McTagg, who's the president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, talking about the price at the pump. Uh, right now, about $1.65 a litre, he's saying it will likely go up a few cents by the end of the week, and he is predicting even higher prices by the time summer comes. This is Mornings with Simi. We know this wave of Omicron, this COVID-19 variant, is having an impact all over the world. And some jurisdictions are a couple of weeks ahead of us in terms of the impact and what they're seeing on their system. So we thought, let's check check back in with what is going on in Denmark. Joining us now is Shane Woodford, of course, former CKNW reporter who is now based in Denmark. Shane, good morning. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Now, we talked to you, I think, a couple weeks ago before Christmas, mm-hmm. and boy, Omicron was really taking a toll. What's happening now? Yeah, uh, that situation has gotten uh, much worse. Uh, we're seeing daily uh, COVID infection numbers that are now topping 20,000, uh, which is unheard of here. Uh, we've never seen anything more than, you know, at a very worst a year ago, it was in the five, six, seven thousand 7,000 range a day. Uh, so that's bad. Uh, we're seeing hospitalizations just climb steeply. Um, the only good sliver of good news in that is that uh, intensive care and death seem to be decoupled a bit from the overall hospitalizations, which is sort of a testament to the protection that is now in place because of vaccinations. But um, it's that numbers game to me. I mean, Omicron, uh, the evidence seems to point that it's going to cause you know, fewer hospitalizations in comparison to, say, the Delta variant. But it's also three or four times more infectious. So the numbers game comes into play because, you know, if uh, Delta hospitalized 2% of the people that infected and Omicron hospitalized 1%, well, 1% of a number that's four times greater than what the Delta variant uh, infected is going to be a much larger number overall, even though technically uh, it's not that much of a danger. It's a less risk to have a hospitalization with the Omicron variant. But we're at almost 800 hospitalizations right now. And we're approaching um, the highest level of hospitalizations we've ever seen, just a few below what we saw about a year ago. Yeah, that's what I was wondering then. So can you compare this wave to what Denmark has seen previously? Yeah, well, we're in the worst wave we've seen because, as I said, hospitalizations are really kind of rising and putting a strain on the healthcare system. Uh, and the numbers are, are exponentially higher than we've ever seen before. But it's the hospital system that is the biggest concern to me um, because, and it's so complex, it's a nuanced thing, right? It's so many things going into it. One, it's the overall influx of patients. Maybe you're not seeing as many in intensive care, but you're seeing a lot of people coming into the hospital. That further drains resources and causes stress on a system that has been incredibly strained for two years now. Uh, Denmark has what's called sort of a legal patient's rights system. So if you get sick, then by law, uh, you have to be treated within a certain window of time. Uh, They have for the third time in the pandemic just suspended that in order to concentrate completely on COVID patients. Hospitals are now switching to emergency mode. Uh, in Copenhagen, the, what would be in, in your terms would be a regional district, so it would be like Metro Vancouver and Vancouver Census. Uh, the, the regional district in charge of, of Metro Copenhagen is meeting a couple of days to discuss moving their hospitals to the highest level of emergency operations and increasing overall capacity and ICU capacity to deal with what has been a hospitalization wave that shows no signs of slowing down. 
And then you have the other things. I mean, you have influenza, you have some of the other things, someone falls and breaks a leg. Uh, all of those got to go into the hospital system and be dealt with. And then you have healthcare staff who are been run off their feet for two years and are burnt out. And we're seeing more and more evidence a certain percentage of healthcare staff are packing it in and leaving. Uh, staffing shortages uh, have caused emergency rooms to close in different hospitals here in Denmark. It's an ongoing issue that likely is going to get worse. Uh, it is a very, very, very serious issue. And then the other thing to me is, is because of the COVID thing, um, we're seeing again all sort of non-urgent uh, procedures and that kind of thing um, pushed off again. And there's already a huge backlog, and now that backlog is getting bigger and bigger. So it means if the COVID pandemic were, say, to end tomorrow, it's not. But if it were to end tomorrow, um, the strain in the hospital system in order just to catch up will continue for months and months afterwards. What about the rest of Europe? What are they seeing? Yeah, we're seeing incredible numbers. I mean, France is breaking 200,000 cases a day. Italy cracked 100,000 for the first time ever just a few days ago. Uh, it's a little unsteady right now because of the holiday season and numbers kind of tend to be a little mixed up. So we're going to see a lot of catching up in the days ahead. But, uh, you know, Spain, Germany, uh, the Omicron wave is just hitting Europe incredibly hard. So uh, it is a not good situation here. So what about testing here, Shane? Can you talk about that for a second? Because I know that Denmark has been exceptional when it comes to testing, but is that system holding up? That system so far has been holding up, albeit it, even Denmark's very robust testing system is starting to strain. So uh, we currently have about 500,000 uh, tests that's combined PCR and rapid tests uh, daily capacity. So we're testing around 500,000 people each day. That's going to be ramped up to 750,000 within a couple of days because the system is, is basically the demand on the system now is, is at or exceeding uh, what they're able to do each day. Um, it's, it's, you know, uh, I saw an epidemiologist here who actually suggested that Denmark is testing too little, uh, which might come as shocking from your perspective, Yeah, uh, but we have a positive, yeah, a positivity percentage of now of, you know, 12, 13, 14% in the last few days. And, uh, he's basically saying with a positivity percentage that high, uh, that it means we need to test more because there's more, there's just the sheer amount of cases out there and that we're seeing some escapes that are, that are not being detected. Is there any sign of a plateau at this point though, Shanks? I know they're talking about that in the UK. They've talked about that in South Africa. Like, do you see that corner in sight? We don't see that corner in sight yet. I mean, it looks like the Omicron wave is just sort of hitting its stride. And again, we're going to, I mean, the picture's a little fuzzy right now because of Christmas and New Year's. You know, testing goes up and down, staff are out for holidays, that kind of thing. And so there's going to be uh, some catch up that's going to clarify that picture in the days ahead. But I mean, everywhere I look across Europe, every time I check Denmark's numbers, uh, the numbers continue to go up. So uh, maybe they plateau soon. Hopefully they do and we start to see a de-escalation. But right now it looks like we are headed nowhere but up. Shame. And I should add to me that those numbers are going to get worse because it's back to school tomorrow Right. Uh, for primary school students. And we had a press conference today where they said that back to school will increase infections. There's no way around Wait, it. Are they sending people, kids back into the schools then? They haven't switched to remote learning or anything like that? They had a bit of a delay, so they sent them home early for Christmas, and then they sent them back a few days late. So my son, for example, had online school yesterday and today. But physically, we'll go back to class tomorrow. But they're also investing uh, in buying 65 million self-testing kits. So I went down to a school today and, and got a couple of boxes of self-testing kits. And we have to administer a, a test on him here at home tonight. Uh, hopefully, it's negative, And then 
Uh, we have to test them twice a week with the self-testing kits until we're told to stop. All right. Best of luck, Shane. Thanks for the update. Always appreciate it. Stay safe out there. You too. That's Shane Woodford, a former CKNW reporter who's now a freelancer in Denmark, talking about what that country is facing. They've been exceptional in Denmark when it comes to testing, just an amazing number of tests they've been running on a daily basis. And they are also now maxing out. They are in that wave of Omicron. And as Shane said, they do not see uh, the end, the plateau, the corner, or anything like that in sight and they are reaching the limits of their system. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's talk books because I do love to do that. It can be a tricky situation to try to predict what people are going to want to read, but that is something library systems all over the place have to try to figure out because you get a popular book, all of a sudden everybody wants to take it out. How do you juggle all that? And what were some of the most borrowed books from the Vancouver Public Library in 2021? Well, we're going to find out right now. Kay Cahill joins us, the Director of Collections and Technology for the Vancouver Public Library. Kay, thanks for being here. Uh, My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. How busy of a year was 2021? It has been a very busy year for us, I have to say, right through 2020 and 2021. It's been really apparent that libraries have had an important role to play for people during this time. And how did you manage that demand? Because you also had that added pressure of not every, you weren't always open for all of 2021, were you? Uh, So we've been open for all of 2021. We were closed for four months in 2020. And what we saw and how we really managed that was that um, even though the library wasn't open for people to come in and borrow physical books, all of our digital collections were still available. And that was very much one of the stories of 2020 for us was that the use of the digital collections just exploded. It went up about, I think it was 43% over the course of 2020. So people were still finding lots of lots of materials to keep them busy and to keep them entertained through 2020. And that has continued through 2021, even though you know, we're very happy to be open again and that people can come in and borrow physical books. Uh, the digital use has continued to be very strong. Let's talk about those books then that people are borrowing. Can I ask you, Kay, what is the process like deciding which books the library is going to buy and how many copies of each? Sure. So we have a really great selections team who stay on top of everything that's popular and they keep an eye on you know things like upcoming titles, uh, what's what's new from the publishers, um, awards that are that are happening, um, and so they select the books for the library uh, based on all of the information that they have. And they develop collection profiles for certain areas as well. So they make sure we have everything that people are looking for. Right. But some books might take off, you know, after they get released. And then do you have to buy more copies? We do. So we, we use something that we call hold ratios. And what that, what that really means is that once a certain number of people have reserved copies of a book, we actually then buy automatically more copies of that book to fill the need. Wow. Okay. That must be a challenging system because sometimes, you know, book gets popular on TikTok or book talk as they call it, and then it's off and running and you're probably having to catch up. Uh, Well, it works automatically. So thankfully, we are usually able to stay on top of those things. You just know when people are requesting a lot, a lot of copies of a book. Exactly. The system tracks that. And if there's a lot of requests, then we'll start adding more copies. Well, let's talk about those really popular books of 2021. What stood out? Sure. So I think what stood out in 2021 in in some ways was actually it was a little bit more of a return to normal. So 2020, we saw the most popular books very much driven by kind of pandemic interest. So we had, you know, all the things you would expect. We had cookbooks. Uh, We actually had a lot of the um, apocalypse type fiction was was showing up. Uh, This year, it was really sort of more back to just normal popular fiction. We did see in the nonfiction list, there were a lot of self-help titles. 
and a lot of titles like um, Sapiens and Talking to Strangers and Nomad Land. So really a, a strong interest in people understanding themselves and understanding the world around them better. Um, political titles are always popular. We saw a few of those. Um, there's also uh, Vancouver readers do love the murder mystery series. So we saw some murder mystery series showing up in the fiction. And then I think the um, the children's and young adult lists to um, you know lots of the very popular series there like Harry Potter and Diary of a Wimpy Kid that show up over and over, but also some of the enduring classics, so things like The Hobbit and Wrinkle in Time, and you know those things that parents enjoyed when they were young and now are passing on to their own children. I find the nonfiction print book list really interesting. What was the most popular, what was the number one borrowed book under adult nonfiction in print? So adult nonfiction, it was actually in print. It was Barack Obama's Promised Land. And in digital, it was uh, Nomadland, Surviving America in the 21st Century by Jessica Bruder. It's interesting that there were different versions of that. Like you said, Sapiens, uh, that, that's a very popular book. It was number two in ebooks, but it didn't make the top 10 on the print side. Yeah, we do find we sometimes have different audiences for the, the print and digital, and there's, there's definitely some titles that, that show up on both lists. So, for example, for the fiction, um, Matt Haig's Midnight Library was, was top of both. Um, but we do also see that there's slight differences in the list, and that's always a little bit fascinating to look at. And particularly given the increase in digital use over the last couple of years and the fact that we have new digital users of the library during that time. So I think we'll, we'll probably continue to see some variation. Let's talk about that fiction list then. So what were the top borrowed print books in adult fiction? So adult fiction, it was Midnight Library by Matt Haig was our number one. Uh, that was also the number one in um, top borrowed digital as well. Okay, and then in second place, you had Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett, which was also in the top five for ebooks. That is correct. Okay, Tell me, run through that top five for me then for the print books. The top five, we had Midnight Library by Matt Haig, Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett, Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens, and Indians on Vacation by Thomas King. Those were all very good books because I read three of them. So that was a really good year for those. Um, is there any? Is there ever any way to predict what's going to be popular? And do you yourself get book ideas, reading ideas, Kay, from people who come to the library? Oh, I, I certainly do. And I mean, I, I get reading ideas from this list every year too. There's always things on it that I haven't read that I look at it and I'm like, oh, I, I need to try that. Um, so certainly, I think some of the things that can help us predict what are going to show up, um, we do see that often when something wins a major award, it'll show up on the list, it'll have a surge in popularity. Um, and then I think the other thing that consistently drives things that show up on the list is when a popular movie or TV series is is made of a book, we'll, we'll then see the book itself either rise in popularity if it's new or sometimes come back to the list again if it's something that was popular previously. I love this. Okay, so th is this something that the, v the Vancouver Public Library does every year? We do this every year. Well, we're going to have to talk to you next year. I'm curious already about what's going to be a big year. Uh, Kay, thank you so much for your time. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you very much. That's Kay Cahill, who's the Director of Collections and Technology for the Vancouver Public Library. So the most popular books, the most borrowed books in print at the VPL for 2021, Midnight Library was number one. Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett was number two, Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens was number three. 
I can't say enough good things about that book. I really loved Where the Crawdads Sing. Number four, Indians on Vacation by Thomas King. Uh, Number five was Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguro. Also a great book. Great books in the entire top 10. Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reed was number nine. Also a great book. Anxious People by Frederick Bachman was number 10. Again, very enjoyable. So the top 10 list is a great one. But on the adult nonfiction side in print, in the top five, there was Barack Obama, two Malcolm Gladwell books, back-to-back at number two and number three. They're both excellent. Talking to Strangers, by the way, which was number two. Really great Malcolm Gladwell book. Uh, Number four was the Guinness Book of World Records, which I guess was really popular for people to check out. And number five, Great on her local author, Eve Lazarus, with Vancouver Exposed Searching for the City's Hidden History, was the fifth most borrowed print book in adult nonfiction. Great year for reading. It was. I When I checked my list this morning, I read 45 books in 2021, and I think that was my record. I think I exceeded my record by a couple of books last year. It's the pandemic, of course, right? Everybody has been reading. 